In Revelation chapter 5, we saw that only Jesus, the slain Lamb of God, and the Lion of Judah, the one who is victorious, yet the one who was slain, is able to open the seven seals of the scroll, which was appeared. He alone was worthy to open its seals. We haven't gone into too much when we were looking at Revelation chapter 5. But what are these seals? What is this scroll? Well, what we see from what is said across the next few chapters is that this scroll represent, represents all that's happening in the world from Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming. The opening of these seven seals represents the ongoing history of the world from the point where Jesus ascended to his throne in heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father to when he will come again to judge the world. And the events of history are outlined in these seven seals. Today we look at the first of these, the first four of these seven seals in Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 to 8. Next, we plan to look at seals 5 and 6, and then after that, the seventh seal. So the pattern of 4, 2, and 1, as Leon Morris points out, is repeated, not just with the seals, but with the trumpets and the bowls as well. So let's consider the first four of these seals as I've mentioned, the first four of these seals are frequently known as and summarized by the title The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. That sounds very grand and foreboding. But actually, when you break it down, the word apocalypse means revelation. It's a very old-fashioned word that simply means revelation, something which was not known but which is revealed. The book of Revelation is the book of the apocalypse, um, as it is sometimes described. So basically, these four horsemen are the four horsemen in the book of Revelation. That's all. We could actually note that they're not necessarily men. We just know them as writers. We're not told that they're male. They could be female. We don't know. It doesn't matter. But that's what they're known as, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first, the first rider is on a white horse, carrying a bow, wearing a crown. And we have to remember that these are symbolic. These are representative. These are communicating concepts, ideas to us through a vision, through something visual. This is not a writer who's going to come at any particular point in the future or has come in the past. This is the Lord representing a truth to John in the form of a vision. It's a visual depiction of a truth. Instead of telling a parable, which is a, a, an audible, a word-based um, way to communicate a truth, this is a visual way to communicate a truth. So we don't necessarily look to see um, a, a rider on a red horse at some point in time. The second horseman is on a 
uh, a white horse or a red horse. The, the first horseman is on a white horse. The second is on a red har horse carrying a sword. And that signifies war. The first horse carrying a bow, wearing a crown, symbolizes conquest. The second horseman is on a red horse carrying a sword, signifying war. The third is on a black horse carrying scales and measuring out food. Well, in the Bible, the only time when food needed to be measured out, the only significant time, is during famine. In Genesis, when we read that Joseph was in charge of the, all the grain that had been stored up through the seven good years, and people came and the food was weighed out to them as they needed it. Scales symbolize famine. Also, famine is mentioned specifically in verse 8 as one of the four causes of death. So we know that this is what's what this is referring to. The fourth horseman is on a pale green horse, accompanied by the grave. This rider is death, and he's accompanied by the grave. We're not told that the, the grave is another rider, maybe sitting behind him or walking beside him, or even that it is a person at all. We're just told that the fourth rider is death, and he's accompanied by the grave in some form or another. And together they were given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill with a sword, with famine, with disease, and by wild animals. So what do we make of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, these four riders that we see? Well, the first thing we should note, again, is that they're not necessarily horsemen. They are symbolizing what is happening to us, to human history. Commentators helpfully note that these four riders are paralleled very closely a number of times in the Old Testament as well. And so to understand, as is so frequent within Revelation, to understand what this means, we aren't to go to to culture around and try and find out what was happening in the world around John or in the Roman Empire to try and decode the Bible. What were the world events that were maybe happening that will tell us what this means? Or what do we imagine this means? The Bible is never to be interpreted through external sources. If there's a difficulty in the Bible, we ought to let the Bible interpret it. And so often in Revelation, the meaning of the prophecies, uh, the visions, can be interpreted through what is found in the Old Testament. The background to the four riders is Zechariah 6, verses 1 to 8, where four groups of horses of almost identical colors, as shown in Revelation 6, were sent by God to punish the nations who had oppressed God's people, the Israelites. Beale notes that the horses in Revelation 6, verses 1 to 8, signify that natural and political disasters throughout the world are caused by Christ in order to judge unbelievers who persecute Christians. 
and in order to vindicate his people. Such vindication demonstrates his love for them and his justice. He also notes that disasters that unfold are the same foreseen as the four judgments prophesied by Ezekiel, the sword, the famine, the wild beasts and plague, and Ezekiel 14. And the judgments also prophesied by Jesus, war, famine and persecution in Matthew 24. Some commentators note that the purpose of the trials in Ezekiel are to punish the majority of Israelites who were unfaithful to God on the one hand, while at the same time sanctifying, testing, refining those who were faithful to God. The trials that people go through, therefore, have a dual purpose of punishment for those who oppose God as well as disciplining and refining those who are God's children, who walk with the Lord. There are also parallels possibly with Leviticus chapter 26, verses 18 to 28, where the Israelites are warned about four judgments if they are unfaithful to God. So suffering, tribulation, these tend to have a dual purpose. In God's providence, on the one hand, it's punishment for those who do not follow God for their sin, for the rejection of God. And on the other hand, they help discipline and refine those who are God's children as they anticipate eternal blessings to come. And so often in the Bible, punishments that we find here and now are warnings of even greater punishment to come in eternity. So even in punishment, even in wrath, God is being merciful. God is providing a warning so that we will turn to him, learn that sin is serious, has consequences, needs to be judged. There needs to be, as philosophers would say, there needs to be a cosmic justice sometime, somewhere in the world. Evil should not be allowed to prosper. The majority of evil will be judged on the judgment day but some of it is judged in advance but what we learn from that is that there is a judgment day if God were to have no punishment here and now we would be totally unaware of what a judgment day would be so even in God's wrath even in his anger even in his punishment for sin he is telling us, listen, there's something greater that we need to be aware of and avoid. These are difficult topics. And it's very popular and it's reassuring if we wanted to, to just see God as a loving, gracious, forgiving God. But if God the Father did not spare his own son and put him to death for our sins to be forgiven. How can he let everyone else off without suffering the punishment for sin? Sin is serious. The wrath of God, natural justice is serious. And so we have to take God's word and recognize that justice and judgment 
is a terrifying and difficult topic, but one that we have to engage with. Looking at these four riders in a little more detail, the first rider on the white horse carries a bow and has a conqueror's crown. Views are split as to what this rider symbolises. Some people think that, well, white is a symbol of peace and Christ is often symbolised by white. White is a symbol of righteousness. So maybe this rider is Christ. Christ has conquered sin and death. He is victorious over sin and death. So maybe this is Christ that this is referring to. It's worth noting that this is not a royal crown. The Greek word for crown is not the royal crown of one who sits on a throne, but the the laurel wreath type of crown of somebody who has won a battle or a race. This is not the crown of Christ sitting victorious on the throne. And the bow is so often in the Old Testament a symbol of war. And Christ did not conquer with implements of war. But he conquered by being put to death. Not by being more powerful. Also, the symbolism of the four riders bringing destruction and death only parallels the Old Testament passages. If this rider, this first rider, is not seen as Christ, but is seen as symbolizing human warfare. If we say that this is Christ and go against the whole flow of the, the, the symbolism, Well, as one commentator, Beasley Murray, says, this is to play havoc with the whole scheme of John's vision. It just doesn't fit to see this first rider as being Christ. It fits far better to see this first rider as being war. Human history has war. We have gone to war with each other. And if these four riders are are talking about the death and destruction that occurs in human history. It would seem odd if this were not included. The second rider on the red horse takes peace from the earth. This is a natural consequence of war as well as a precursor to war. Conflict often results in war. The lack of peace, the conflict that occurs, can occur separate to war. And so often, so often we have ceasefires, but we don't have peace. There is disharmony between nations, between communities, between individuals, from On the one hand, the wars of nations right down to the antisocial behaviour of neighbours. And part of this is also the war against God's people. There's, There's racism against certain races. There's discrimination against certain groups of people. 
but also there is persecution of believers. This disharmony, this lack of peace that the second writer brings, this lack of shalom, that well-rounded wholeness or peace that is so often described in the Old Testament, not simply the lack of war, but the presence of well-being is missing. The second writer takes that away. The third rider on a black horse is not as devastating as war, but bringing famine causes many problems as well. Maybe John had in mind the fact that believers would be more affected by the economic deprivation that's not bowing down to the, the many gods of the Roman Empire would result in. The believers who John is writing to will be very aware that they are struggling with making ends meet under the persecution that would happen. Not necessarily to death, but persecution nevertheless, where they find it hard to just live an ordinary life before God, to be able to get a job or trade. The fourth rider on the pale horse is death accompanied by the grave death is often seen as you know, the, the pale look on the face of somebody who has died the symbolism here is pointing towards the reality of death accompanied by the grave we don't need to say too much more about death it is something that is has invaded human experience we should never have brought death into the world death is always alien unwelcome unnatural at every funeral there's always a sense in which this should not have happened this is not how life ought to be death is so sad and yet it is such a reality in our human experience well what do the four horsemen symbolize what power do they have who sent them what's the big picture that we're showing here we could go into the details of the horses the individual horses and the symbolism a little bit more but let's let's take a step back and let's look at what what are we learning from from these four horsemen. The sails that are opened describe events. They include the event of God's final judgment day to come, the later sails, not the first four. But they also began when the Lamb, the Lion of Judah, ascended to his throne and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Once he ascended, John looked and there was no one worthy to open the scroll, but he was worthy. After he ascended, the scrolls needed to be opened. And the final scroll is where judgment comes. The seven seals describe events 
between Christ's first coming and his last, or his second coming. They describe human history. So the obvious thing that follows on from that is to note that if Christ is opening these seals, then human history isn't simply a random chance thing. It's not simply that history is a chaotic process of evolution of the fittest. Who dares wins? Human history is not primarily determined by our actions, significant and crucial as they are, but Christ is in control of human history. He is the one who sends one thing then the other. In human history, God is in control. He sends one writer, he sends another writer. He allows war to come into our experience. He allows famine. He allows death. That's a shocking reality that Jesus is sending these four horsemen, not one after the other in terms of human history, but these four things occur all at the same time. But that Jesus is sending these. A lot of people have the idea that Jesus is the baby in the manger, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. They struggle with him even speaking harshly to the Pharisees when they eventually had persistently had rejected him the idea that God would send judgment is an even more difficult concept for a lot of people but this is what the Bible teaches if our view of God is like he is like the ambulance service that only comes onto the scene after events have happened then actually we have a wrong view of God He's not simply there to to be prayed to, Lord, this has happened, please sort it out, please fix it. If that were the case, then something else is in control of human history. Something else is determining why things happen and God is only reacting to something bigger outside of his control. But God is in control. He is in charge of human history. The things that happened aren't happen aren't outside of his control. If they were, then he would not be almighty God. But he is. These things are in his control. And that is good news for us. Because, because they're in his control, he is able to constrain the limits of death. He is able to constrain how much evil has an impact in the world. And we see that it only affects a quarter of humanity, as we are told in this passage. He is in control, and he is actually bringing good. It's not as though chaos is in control and God is reacting to it. God is bringing good from all things. 
We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. God is in control. He is working all things together for good. Including the evil, including the death that we see. Is there some other way that he could bring people to himself and bring good? We we might think, we might be tempted to think, well, God, if, if you were doing a better job, you would do human history slightly differently. I think you should have been doing things this way instead of the way you are. But actually, that's a quite a dangerous situation to be in or a, approach to take because what that's doing is we're sitting in judgment over God. We're told not to sit in judgment over each other. Never mind God. In a similar discussion about God's <clears throat> providence, God's decisions, God's plans, Paul answers with the assertion, no, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? We know he is good. We know he is just and the closer we get to him, the more we realize that his ways are perfect. He knows best. After three chapters in the middle of the book of Romans of considering how God has worked through human history, Paul concludes with these words, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the, the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. God's in control. God is good. And even if we don't understand why or how, he is working all things together for good. This is the way things have to happen. At the same time, that's seeing it from one perspective. There's another perspective where we are responsible for our actions. We can't just put all the blame on God saying, You've made me like this, therefore you're to blame for the bad things I do. We're responsible for the sin that we do, for the evil that we do. It is actually we who have rejected God. Humanity rejected God back in the garden. We rejected God's government afterwards. We rejected his ways. It is we who go to war against each other. It's nation that rises up against nation community against community, race against race, neighbor against neighbor. It is sin in our lives, which is the cause of so much war, so much death by famine. There's more than enough food to go around in the world. Nobody needs to die from famine. It's greed and power that causes death when crops fail. In the potato famine in Ireland, in the great hunger, 
people needn't have died. There was enough food available if it hadn't been exported for profit. There was enough aid available if it had been given in time. At the, at the minute, you've probably seen in the news this week, there's an outcry that the UK government is decreasing its aid by 29%. It doesn't want to help feed those who are in need. It doesn't want to, uh, to help the poorest countries. Yemen, which is war-torn, will end up with a 60% decrease in the amount of food aid that it's going to get from the UK. And tens of thousands of lives will be lost as a result of the cuts to the UK's aid budget, the chief executive of Oxfam has said. There's no need for people to die of famine. There is enough food in the world to feed everyone. On the one hand, God is in control. On the other hand, where to blame? Who's to blame for war? Well, war starts with the greed of nations, uh, the lust for power in leaders, the bad decisions of leaders. It's people who go to war with people. It's Japan that decided to bomb Pearl Harbor. It's the Nazis. Germany that decided to invade most of Western Europe. We could go on. Sin, the cycle of sin, we are doing it and we don't need much provocation. Disease, now that's a more difficult one. You can point to the individual who started a war or the country that started a war, but what about when we're suffering from a pandemic, disease, illnesses? We can't so easily point the finger at somebody to blame for those. And yet, still, we can. There was humanity that said no to God, that disobeyed God. It was humanity that had no... Living in a perfect world where there was no disease, no more. There was no suffering. And we rejected God. And the punishment for that was exclusion from the garden, exclusion from blessing. We, The situation we are in is because we have together, not individually necessarily. We didn't. Our representative did. Humanity in general did. Turned its back on God. And so, at a very much removed level, we have brought disease into our world. And yet, in God's grace, he is preparing a place for us where there will be no more disease, no more famine, no more war, no more suffering. He is allowing these things to happen in order that he can bring a perfect and eternal world where these things will be no more. We might be tempted to to look at God and look at Jesus and say, you've sent the four riders, the four horsemen, that's such a terrible thing. But actually, the, the work that Jesus is doing, the work that God is doing, which will far outlast that, the bigger picture is that he's preparing a world where these things will be no more. 
we have to also recognize that we are not innocent victims of poverty, of war, of famine, of illness. While we individually have not started wars or given humanity the predicament that we're in, together we have. And yet God in his grace offers us salvation, redemption, eternal life. He could have just judged us and be done with it. But instead he is persevering with us, encouraging us, showing us that we need to turn to him. He provided a place for us for eternity. He has provided a way for us to be right with him. He sent his only son to die on the cross so that we would not have to suffer this life or the punishment for our sin any longer. He is kind, gracious, merciful, and patient. (coughs) As Paul says in Romans chapter 2, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this not mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you're stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Peter tells us, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. If we just look at the four horsemen and see death and destruction, we're not getting the big picture. We do learn that God is in control and that the events of human history are in his hands. And he's working all things together for good and he wants us not simply not simply to recognize that he is in control. He wants us to turn to him for salvation. He is patient. And in his patience, all these events are pointing us to him. As Paul says in Acts 17, all of our existence is pressing us. All the boundaries, the the limits of our habitation, our lives are pointing us towards God that we might seek him and find him, that we might turn to him and know the forgiveness that is there in Christ Jesus. So how should we respond? What John is seeing in the vision, if we see that what the vision means rather than what the vision shows, if we see past the four riders and the horses, what we see is that it means that Jesus is in control over the problems of death and famine and sickness and war in this world. They are limited. They are not rampant. They're not out of control. They're constrained. The fact that he is in control is so reassuring to us. If God were not in control, we would have no hope. But God is in control. 
even though we're going to war with each other, he is in control. And he doesn't let us go through more than we can cope with. We might look at the world and see, why is this and this and this happening? But actually, God has restrained far more. If God had not restrained it to just a quarter, then the world would be a far worse place. We need to thank God that he has restrained sin and death and evil so, so much. But when the church is persecuted, we can also see that we are assured that that is not out of his control either. He has limited the persecution that the church goes through. And he won't let us go through anything more than what we can handle with his grace to help us. It's also important to realize that suffering happens in this world, even for believers. The gospel promises that we will be freed from suffering, but not now. We cannot claim that God wants us to be free of all suffering now. We can claim that God wants us to be free of all suffering. Yes, but the timing of it is we will experience it all in eternity to come. All of that will be gone. Here and now we have to go through suffering. Yes, God releases us from so much. He answers so many prayers. He does miracles. But these are signs. These are the exceptions. The reality of life that scripture teaches is that life is a struggle. That we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That we do find persecution. That we do find opposition. But Jesus has told us that he will be there with us through it. He doesn't promise that we will never go through it, but he promises that he will be with us through it. If you're struggling, as many people are, not necessarily with COVID, but with personal situations, health, whatever, there's many things that cause us to struggle. This is a struggling world. And we shouldn't be surprised when these things happen to us, Jesus said. Not least because we are his followers and they persecuted him. And we shouldn't expect anything different. But he is victorious. He has overcome the world. He has overcome sin and death. He has conquered. He has paid the price. Death no longer has a hold over humanity. He is in heaven. A resurrected man. The first resurrected human being. And we will follow in his footsteps. If we have trusted in him. If we have accepted the gift of eternal life through faith in Christ Jesus. All who believe in him will not perish have eternal life the four writers and their associated 
horrors accurately represent the horrors of this world in which we live. But Jesus is in control. He is limiting the impact that sin would have. He is limiting the impact of what we have brought upon ourselves, what he is in his providence allowed to happen, what he is in his providence putting in place so that we will have an eternity with him. And yet, through all of this, he is calling people to himself. He is calling those who are weary and weak and heavily laden and burdened to turn to him. He is the God of all comfort. He is the God of all consolation. He is the God who draws alongside us. He is the God who helps us through and gives us hope and gives us a spirit of joy and peace. We praise God that that he is in control and he is gracious. He is forgiving. He wants to reconcile people with himself. And we thank God that he calls us to come to him. As Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. If we look to the world, we can despair, and we will have to be judged for our own sin. But if we look to the Lord, we will find forgiveness, peace. We will find release. We will find hope. So let's praise God for what he has done for us. Let's trust him that he is in control, that judge of the earth will do what is right. And let's look to one day when he will show us how all things worked together for good. And let's trust him in the meantime. Let's pray. Lord, these are difficult matters. These are weighty matters. And we don't fully understand them. And we can't, Lord, because we are not God. But help us, Lord, to accept them. And help us to do what we ought to before you. Help us to to trust in you. Help us to love one another. Help us, Lord, to share this wonderful gospel with one another that there is a day when Christ will come and these things will be no more. Lord, we pray that you draw more people to yourself. Lord, we thank you that you don't wish anyone to perish. Lord, Bring people into a new living relationship with you through faith in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that all it takes is just to simply admit that we need to turn to you and that Christ is the way. And God, have mercy on us. Lord, for we are sinners. Lord, we thank you for such a simple prayer that changes lives. And Lord, for us who have already prayed that prayer, and have found that peace 
in Christ. We thank you. We thank you there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So we thank you, Father. Help us to understand, help us to persevere, but help us to keep looking to you. In Jesus' name, amen.